Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Tonight on 60 Minutes Presents, stories that inspire. How do you define hero? We define it as, at least in terms of our medal awarding requirement is a man or a woman that willingly and knowingly risked their life to an extraordinary degree to save or attempt to save the life of another human being. Thousands have been awarded the Carnegie Hero Medal, along with a $5,500 prize. We wondered why some people are heroic. So we went to Georgetown University to see the neuroscience for ourselves. Olga Smirnova is a Russian prima ballerina, one of the world's leading dancers. But days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Smirnova pirouetted and stepped off her stage at the renowned Bolshoi Theater with dramatic flourish. I was so ashamed of Russia. This is the truth. I'm not ashamed that I'm Russian, but I'm ashamed because of Russia started this action. Three, two, one. Jacob Smith drops into the big cool R, a narrow, rock-walled, 1,400-foot chute. That dot is him, making his way turn by turn. A wrong move can be catastrophic. The run has a 50-degree slope, which means if you slip down the cool R, there's little chance you can stop yourself. We thought you should see this, because he cannot. Jacob is legally blind. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? 
Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Good evening. I'm John Wertheim. Welcome to 60 Minutes Presents. Tonight, stories that inspire. We'll meet Ukrainian dancers pursuing their art while in exile. And a teenage skier who flies downhill without the aid of eyesight. But we begin with a tale of certified heroes. In 1904, 180 Americans were trapped by fire in a Pennsylvania coal mine. Two heroes went in to save them, but the rescuers and all but one of the miners perished. Still, that act of heroism touched one of the richest Americans, a man whose steel mills were fired by coal. Andrew Carnegie donated more than $100 million in today's money to recognize heroes in the U.S. and Canada. As Scott Pelley first reported in 2021, a good deal has changed in 118 years. Thousands have been awarded the Carnegie Hero Medal, and advances in neuroscience are revealing why some of us may be heroic. We'll get to the science, but first, meet some of the Carnegie heroes, including Terry Ann Thomas. I remember thinking, just almost instantly, I am not going to let somebody die. Terry Ann Thomas was a civilian overseeing confiscated property at the headquarters of the Topeka Police Department. In 2015, an agitated man came into the basement property room to demand his bicycle. Thomas turned to find it. As soon as I turned around and started to walk off, I heard a scream. The scream came from Officer Tammy Walter. For reasons we don't know, She'd been attacked by the man in the property room waiting area. Thomas hit a panic alarm and charged out of her locked room. And so as I ran out there, I saw there was blood on the wall, and she was down. And she was not moving. And I went over there, and I pulled him off of her. He looked at me, and he punched me in the face. He turned around, and he started back on her. He's kicking her while she's on the ground and um, constantly punching her. So I went and grabbed him again, and I pulled him off. Help was slow in coming. It seems no one had triggered the panic alarm before, so the cops upstairs weren't sure what it meant. He grabbed something off her gun belt, and I thought, okay, he has her gun. This whole thing has just changed. He hit the elevator button, and he looked at me, and he said, you're coming with me. Later, it turned out it was the officer's radio the man had, not her gun. But Thomas didn't know that in the fight. What happened then? And so I put my foot in the door. It opened up. And with everything I had, 
I grabbed him and I pulled him out of the elevator. And just as soon as we got out, I ran to the door, I opened it, and I just started screaming. And that's when all the officers came in and took him down. A Topeka cop reported that story to the Pittsburgh headquarters of the Carnegie Hero Fund Commission. Eric Zarin is president of the commission. He's a former Secret Service agent. Well, we look at up to 1,000 cases a year, and we award about just a little over 10% of that. So uh, in recent years, that equates to about 80 cases a year. How do you define hero? And we define it as, at least in terms of our medal awarding requirement, is a man or a woman that willingly and knowingly risked their life to an extraordinary degree to save or attempt to save the life of another human being. What are some of the things that your investigators go through when they're investigating a case? We write to or contact police departments, uh, fire departments, you know, the victim in the case who was the rescued party, and other eyewitnesses to the act. And we start to build an understanding of each case. And this is the medal. The Carnegie Medal, molded in bronze, comes with $5,500 and other financial support. We also pay for funeral costs fully for a hero that is killed in the act. We pay any medical costs for any injury that they incur to include psychological after effects, PTSD. We don't present a medal and walk away. We stay there. We stay there for the hero's lifetime and, and sometimes, you know, far beyond. I mean, we, we were recently looking at a case that, you know, a, a gentleman was killed in his heroic act and we supported his wife and then one of his daughters for a total of 72 years until his daughter died. On the beach on that day, I just reacted. Pete Ponser fit the Carnegie definition of hero. He was on a North Carolina beach in 2015 when someone pointed to a boy swept away by a rip current. Ponser and another man swam about 150 yards. And we found a young uh, teenager, a 13-year-old boy, and, and water was starting to wash over his face. This is the boy after they swam him back to shore. As we get to the beach, a church youth group leader comes out and meets with us. He says, thank you. There's another one. A second boy was drowning. Ponser ran, broke his foot, ignored it, and swam out. He eventually lost sight of the boy, but the child was pulled from the water by others and flown to a hospital. So why you? I didn't think about it. It's kind of like if you put your hand on a hot stove and pull it back right away without thinking. That's kind of what it was like for me. It just needed to be done, and I did it. It was the same reaction for David McCartney when fate arrived on a two-lane road in Indiana. I was heading south, and there was a vehicle that seemed like it was going a little bit left, a little bit right, and then all of a sudden it went right, and it hit a culvert. What happened next? Well, you can start seeing the smoke. It was starting to bellow out, and you can actually start hearing Miss Testerman, who I come to find out was starting to scream because the vehicle was actually starting to catch on fire. Elizabeth Testerman was trapped. Yeah, she's sitting there screaming underneath the dashes on fire. The smoke's just going through your nose, and you're trying to figure out, well, what to do now? I mean, it's McCartney and another man kicked in her windshield and cut her seatbelt with a knife. We pull her feet out, and then we kind of wiggle her up through that um, uh, windshield that was kicked out, and then we pull her over to the grass and laid her down. A minute later, he told us, the car exploded. 
That fear of dying in a car is well known to Abigail Marsh. She's not a hero, but she was saved by one. At age 19, she was on an interstate at night and swerved to miss a dog. She went into a spin, which left her facing lanes of high-speed traffic in a car she couldn't restart. And I spent some amount of time uh, 100% certain I was about to die. I mean, I was, you know, any one of these cars hadn't swerved in time, and I definitely would have been dead. What happened? I hear a rap on the... Uh, passenger side window, and I see a man's face staring into my car, and he said, you look like you could use some help. The stranger got her car started and drove her to safety. His act of heroism led her to become Dr. Abigail Marsh, a neuroscientist who studies what gets into the heads of heroes. At Georgetown University, she has published studies on the brains of two kinds of people, psychopaths who have no compassion for others, and people who have so much compassion that they donated a kidney to a stranger. She found a striking difference in a pair of tiny structures near the bottom of the brain called the amygdalae. They subconsciously recognize danger and react faster than conscious thought. One of the big things that we know they do is they're responsible for generating the experience of fear. What's interesting about that is that not only is the amygdala essential for giving you the experience of fear, it seems to allow you to empathize with other people's fear. As her subjects were scanned, Marsh showed them emotional faces. And whereas people who are psychopathic show very minimal responses in the amygdala when they see a frightened face, people who have given kidneys to strangers have an exaggerated response in the amygdala, which we think means that they are... Um, more sensitive than most people to others' distress, better at interpreting what other people are in distress, more likely to pick up on them. Perhaps like the man um, who saved her on the freeway. People. No telling how many psychopaths drove past you that night. <laughs> Just try to relax and stay as still as possible during the scan. We wondered whether our Carnegie heroes were born heroic. All right, you comfortable in our team? Was there a difference in their brains? All three volunteered for Dr. Marsh's scans. Uh, to my, I'm not going to lie, it was, I was really pleased uh, and gratified by what we found in the heroic rescuers, which is that just like the altruistic kidney donors, their amygdalas were larger than average and significantly more responsive to the sight of somebody else in distress, which makes so much sense. I mean, you know, these are the people who, when they saw somebody terrified because they thought they were about to die, they didn't just sit there. You know, they have all told us that they sprang into action, as you say, without thinking. You don't think, you just, you're strictly acting. I didn't think about it. I didn't even think about it. It really makes sense when you think about how ancient and deep in our brains structures like the amygdala are. And I, I wouldn't want to say that the amygdala is where altruism is in the brain. It's one link in a very long chain of events that's happening that takes us from seeing that somebody's in danger to actually acting to help them. But we know that it, it's definitely an essential link in that chain, whether you're a mouse or a rat or a dog or a human. It's, it's performing these same functions at a really deep, fast, subconscious level. If the act of heroism is a sprint, the consequences are a marathon. For David McCartney, it was for the better. He's the first to admit he wasn't a good man. In the past, he'd pleaded guilty to battery. 
but he promised the woman he pulled from the burning car that he would do good. And in 2019, he donated a kidney. Who did the kidney go to? I have no clue. On the other hand, for Terry Ann Thomas, heroism has been troubling. She wasn't able to go back to work in the police property room. I had a hard time. I still have a hard time. And it's been a hard time for Pete Ponser, who was left with regret. That second boy he could not reach was flown to a hospital but did not survive. A hero would have gotten the second one as well. And that's a challenge that I always live with. I just couldn't get the second kid. His regret was coupled with curiosity about the boy he saved seven years ago, the boy whose name he never knew. The young man that you saved is named Sebastian Prokop. And we found him. Okay. And he had something that he wanted to say to you. So let me introduce you. I'm Sebastian Prokop. I'm 18. I recently graduated from high school, and I'm working towards going to college, getting a car, all that good stuff. Thank you to the one who pulled me out and let me be able to achieve all the milestones that I've got and that I plan to get. Thank you, Scott. What is it like to see him today? It kind of takes my breath away, Scott. That helps to bring some closure and some help. Help for Heroes has been the mission of the Carnegie Fund for 118 years. It has bestowed 10,000 medals and awarded $40 million. Back in 1904, Andrew Carnegie sensed what science has now confirmed. Heroes, he said, cannot be created. They act on an impulse. A mysterious gift to the few. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. For decades now, Russians have known the drill. When there's bad news brewing, such as the death of a leader or convulsive events, such as the Chernobyl disaster, State TV switches its programming and begins airing Tchaikovsky's ballet, Swan Lake. Nothing to see here, folks. But also note the choice of distraction. Ballet is centrally important to Russian society and to Russian image. Dancers slicing through the air and challenging laws of physics and gravity represent civility and grace. 
But last February, when Russian military troops invaded Ukraine, Russian ballet troops had their Western tours canceled. And Moscow's Bolshoi Theater has shuttered shows by directors critical of Putin's war. As we first reported last year, this brutal war plays out on the most delicate of fronts, leaving ballet in exile. When ballet dancers are described as God's athletes, well, you could offer up Olga Smirnova as supporting evidence. She treads on air, coming in on little cat feet. She's a Russian prima ballerina, one of the world's leading dancers. But days after Russia invaded Ukraine, Smirnova pirouetted and stepped off her stage at the renowned Bolshoi Theater with dramatic flourish. She took to social media to express her outrage and then fled the country, the modern-day version of Nureyev or Barishnikov defecting. When you sat down to write that social media post, what did you want to communicate? What did you want to say? I just couldn't keep it inside. I was so ashamed of Russia. This is the truth. I'm not ashamed that I'm Russian, but I'm ashamed because of Russia started this section. I wonder, read what you wrote. You said you were against this war with every fiber of your being, but I now feel that a line has been drawn that separates the before and the after. It's how I felt. 24th of February, this was the line, because it's all changed, all changed the reputation of Russia and Russians people. Even if you are not a soldier, you're just Russian. It, it's so. It's still make a shadow on you. Being Russian. Being Russian, and it's it's really painful. Predictably, Smirnova's post went viral. She was, after all, a leading light at Moscow's Bolshoi Ballet. From the Russian word for big, Bolshoi is the world's largest ballet company and the most prestigious. The theater is physically close to the Kremlin, a short walk away, and also aligned inextricably with the Russian government. Czars love the Bolshoi. For decades, communist leaders used the Bolshoi theater for political stagecraft, holding rallies and giving national addresses there. This is something that celebrates Russia. Every important guests who would visit the Soviet Union would be invited to the Bolshoi to see the performance. And uh, there was a a pride of of Russia at any time. Alexei Radmansky trained at the Bolshoi School and was, for a time, its artistic director. He was born in Russia but grew up in Kyiv, where his parents still live. At the time of the invasion, he was in Russia choreographing two ballets. He left the country immediately, unwilling to continue working in a world so tied to the Putin regime. As I was going in a taxi to the airport, uh, I felt this two sand castles falling apart uh, behind my back. Those those sand castles were the work... The work you had done. Yes, yes, yes. It was an agony. It was a very hard day. And, of course, a catastrophic day for Ukraine. Indiscriminate bombings and missile strikes raining down upon the country, crushing lives and dreams. Not least those of an ascendant ballerina from Kiev, Paulina Chepik, age 17. 
you wanted to be a ballerina for years and years. What was it like when suddenly you couldn't couldn't go to school, couldn't dance? I was shocked, and I'm like, oh my god! And first, about when I'm thinking that I left my point shoes in college. It was my. That was your first thought. Yes. You left your point shoes yes. at school. I left everything actually. War didn't stop her in her footsteps. She resumed dancing at home, using whatever she could as a bar. But after a few days, her parents, both former dancers, focused on getting Paulina out. They called on a famously well-connected figure in the tight-knit ballet community, New Jersey-based Larissa Savliev. You're getting this barrage of emails from from parents and from dancers. What are they? What are they telling you? What are they asking you? Ah,、uh, please help. That was get us out of here. They're willing to give up everything else, but they have to dance. And the parents were, you know, it doesn't matter what we do. They have to dance. This was their their lifeline. Almost. This is it. They just they they could not imagine not dance. In the 1990s, she founded Youth America Grand Prix, a ballet competition and scholarship program, pairing aspiring dancers with ballet schools worldwide. Well, no, they want to see her for full year, but you have to come for the summer first. Now, in a humanitarian crisis, she and the international ballet community scramble to action. Savliev tapped her vast network, relocating more than a hundred young Ukrainian dancers to new schools and host families. We give each child a number, just to move faster, and we say, okay. Number fifty-five is like、uh, just get a spot in Stuttgart. Okay, number fifty-four just get a spot in、uh, Dresden. Cross it off the list. Cross it off the list. When a slot opened for Paulina, she stuffed leotards and tutus into a suitcase, along with a bottle of her mom's perfume, a reminder of home. And then she headed to Kiev's train station. And my parents are in a window of train. They said goodbye.、Uh, we love you. Everything will be fine. And I was crying, and we were all crying. I was thinking maybe I need to take my suitcase and go back to my family because <laughs> my heart was broken, really. How did you overcome that? What 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 made you not get off that train? Because it's open door for me. It's like door for my dream. Seventeen-year-old that she is, Paulina documented the lonely odyssey on TikTok: trains and buses, five days and twelve hundred miles, Kiev to Lviv, Poland to Berlin, finally to Amsterdam, where she landed at the Dutch National Ballet Academy, one of the leading schools in the world. When you got to the new school and started dancing again, how did that feel? Oh, I was very happy. Yes. I、uh, my mind、uh, changed because I was thinking about my parents all the time for my family for my sister, and when I go to the ballet class, the this、uh, world changed for me. I have another world world of ballet. Her adjustment was made easier when she found other Ukrainian dance students who, thanks to Larissa Savliev, also found safe harbor in Amsterdam. Paulina fell into a routine immediately. On the cusp of a professional career, she prepared for final exams. She was jittery beforehand. She emerged relieved, triumphant, 
and eager to report back to mom. What did you tell her? That I was nervous, but when I start, I do everything right. If the war has made refugees out of some Ukrainian dancers, it's made soldiers out of others. When the war began, Alexei Podiumkin, a principal dancer with Ukraine's National Ballet, turned in his tights for military fatigues. Here he is in downtown Lviv, having just returned from duty as a medic. What was your life like before the war? Before war, I must, uh, I preparing a new premiere in ballet, Ukrainian ballet. You know, like real normal life. And just one moment, it's like changes. But uh, I need to do something. I can't sit just at home in shelter and watch TV, how my friends uh, die and uh, everyone do something. What have you seen these last few months? Every day, it's really scary. They crashed everything, destroyed the houses of civilians' people. It's brothers, uh, son, uh, fathers, sisters. While he says he's shaken by what he's seen unfold on the battlefield, he's also appalled by a war taking place on another front, at the Bolshoi. The Bolshoi now, it's toxic feature. Nobody wants to work with you. You said toxic. Toxic, yes. In Russia, art, it's politics. It's uh, Russian government use, use it uh, uh, barely. It's like weapon. The weapon was deployed at the Bolshoi as recently as this past April, when the theater revived a production of Spartacus in support of the Russian military invasion, unnerving many in the dance world, including longtime head of the Dutch National Ballet, Ted Branson. Well, it was a very um, uh, clear statement that we have to support our boys who are on a military operation to save Ukraine from the fascists, which is a totally ridiculous concept, of course. This allegory, Spartacus, about the the slave revolt is is somehow being co-opted by the the aggressive superpower. Absolutely. No, it's 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 not for nothing that this became one of the signature ballets of the Soviet of the Soviet time. Abroad, the ballet community has staged benefit concerts to raise funds for Ukraine, while Russia's famed companies, the Bolshoi and St. Petersburg's Marinsky, have had their touring dates canceled. I think you need to be a little bit more active with your arms. With the Iron Curtain down, artists have to pick a side. Alexei Radmansky left Moscow for American Ballet Theater in New York, where he is artist-in-residence and where we spoke with him remotely this past April. Sounds like you, you don't buy this idea that, look, individuals shouldn't bear the responsibility for, for the acts of the state, that artists should just be artists. No, I don't think the artists are separate from politics. And besides, it's not, for me, it's not politics. It's about humanity. It's about responding to war crimes responding to the crimes of your government, of your president. It just made things clear which things are important and which aren't. And you make a choice. You decide where you want to belong. For Olga Smirnova, that choice came together in a matter of days after she condemned the war. She left Russia and landed on her feet at the Dutch National Opera in Amsterdam, just around the corner from Paulina's school. It must have been incredibly difficult 
to leave the Bolshoi. If you make a choice, you have uh, consequences. But this is how it works. I had to leave everything. Like my home, my theater, my repertoire, my partners, my parents, sister, brother, everything. But I don't have regrets. No regrets? No. Because at least I can be honest with myself. American philanthropist Howard Buffett, son of Warren Buffett, watched our story when it was first broadcast last year. His foundation granted more than a million dollars to help support the exiled Ukrainian dancers. In the world of skiing, there are two kinds of skiers. Those who like to stay on the groomed runs and be guided gently around obstacles, and those who like to ski the whole mountain and ski towards the obstacles. That is called free riding. Man-made jumps, rails, and halfpipes are rejected in favor of the drops, jagged cliffs, and deep chutes created by Mother Nature. The sport of free riding took off in the 1990s and is now one of the fastest-growing disciplines in skiing. Given the risks inherent with the terrain, it attracts some of the bravest and most adventurous skiers in the world. But as Sharon Alfonsi first reported last March, even among that group, 15-year-old Jacob Smith stands out. We thought you should see what he does, because he cannot. This is Big Sky, Montana, home to some of the steepest and most challenging ski slopes in the country. And that is Jacob Smith, who is blind. Three years ago, he was just 12 years old as he made his way to the top of the 11,000-foot-high Lone Peak to ski down it. Watch this. Dropping in three, two, one. Three. Jacob drops into the big couloir, a narrow, rock-walled, 1,400-foot chute. That dot is him, making his way turn by turn. A wrong move can be catastrophic. The run has a 50-degree slope, which means if you slip down the couloir, there's little chance you can stop yourself. When you're standing at the top, you feel like if you move, you're going to die. And that's the moment most people would say, you know what, maybe not a good idea. Yeah, but I'm kind of just like, well, I'm already up here, so i got to make it down somehow. He did, and became the only legally blind athlete to ski the legendary run. You did it. That was awesome. History just has been made. Forever. How did you feel when you made it to the bottom? Excited that I did it. I didn't crash. I thought it was awesome. I guess we made it four more times, so I just wanted to do it again. (laughs) You were testing your luck that day. Yeah. We got Jacob Smith on course. Jacob is still testing his luck and good sense. We met him in January at a junior regional free ride tournament in Big Sky. That's him, now 15 years old, competing against 40 other teenage daredevils, all of whom can see perfectly well. Coming right off the top of that, finding pretty good landing. This time, the background for all the competitors' spectacular experiment with gravity was another triple diamond shoot, appropriately named DTM. DTM stands for... Don't tell mama. (laughs) It is an insane run, like a 45-degree slope. Yeah. Do the judges give you any slack for being blind? No, zero. Do you think they should? No. I don't. I want to be treated normal so I compete with other sighted skiers. 
It's not an insignificant difference. We worked with his doctors and our graphic artists to show roughly what Jacob can see on a run. He has extreme tunnel vision and no depth perception on top of that. It's blurry. His visual acuity is rated 2,800, four times the level of legal blindness. Think of the big E on the eye chart. He would need it to be blown up four times in order to see it from 20 feet away. Fantastic ski technique. You wouldn't be able to tell he's visually impaired. So how does Jacob ski like this? His family keeps him on course. Go up with your right ski really far. On competition days, his little brother Preston patiently helps him hike to the top of the venue. It's so high, the lifts won't take you there. First down, down, perfect, perfect, keep going. Then his father Nathan helps him get down. Nice turns. Nice turns. Jacob has a two-way radio turned up high in his pocket. His dad is on the other end at the base, somehow, calmly, guiding him down. Okay, right, right, right. It's on me to make sure I don't let him down, that I get him in trouble. You know, that I have to guide him through narrower chutes or not go off a cliff. You have to be his eyes. Yeah. And there can't be a delay. He can't say, are you sure, Dad? Nope. Have you ever missed it? Have you ever said, oh, gosh, I forgot to tell him about that or I didn't see that? Oh, yeah, all the time. But his adaptation is pretty amazing. How much do you trust him? Well, I mean, enough to turn right when he tells me. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob's just putting his all into my dad's voice. It's crazy skiing, just listening to someone turn there, turn there. Could you ski like that? It's like closing your eyes, basically. Mm-hmm. It would be so hard. Jacob's siblings are all competitive skiers. That's Andrew, who's 17, doing a 360. Preston is 14, and Julia is 12. Do the other competitors know that he's blind? Uh, some do, but they always, like, announce it over the um, intercom, that, like, blind skier Jacob coming down the hill. He is the only ever, I have to say, blind skier. That's when everyone turns and looks. Oh, it's a miracle. Look at him. Would you know if you didn't know? He's uh, he's such a good skier for legally blind. Everybody, yeah, everybody's they just like, get no mad way. at him if he's in the way. If we tell anybody that he's legally blind, then nobody believes us. They just give us a bad look. Jacob was born with vision. Soon after he learned to walk, he was on skis. Family vacations were spent bombing down the trails in Big Sky with his family. But it was back home at their ranch in North Dakota that an unexpected obstacle changed Jacob's life. He started getting headaches and began bumping into things. He was eight years old. I, like, ran into a wall or something that my mom saw, and then it was, like, two days after I went to the eye doctor, and he took one look at my eyes, looked at my mom, and then just asked, like, which hospital you want, because my octave nerve was swelling and bleeding. Did you have any sense that things were going wrong up until that point? No. That day, Jacob was flown here to the Masonic Children's Hospital in Minneapolis, where he underwent an emergency 12-hour surgery after an MRI revealed a cancerous brain tumor the size of a softball that was crushing his optic nerve. It's the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life. It looked like half his brain was a tumor. So at that point, you're not thinking, I'm worried he's going to lose his vision. You're thinking, I'm, I'm worried losing he's my child. Gonna, you're going to lose your child. I'm going to bury a kid. In that first surgery, doctors removed enough of the tumor to relieve the pressure on Jacob's optic nerve, 
to stop his vision from continuing to deteriorate. Here he is, leaving a message for his siblings a few days later. Miss you all a lot. I really, really do. Getting my visions getting better. I'm coming home. And I'm really excited. But Jacob would need three more major brain surgeries over the next three years, all before he was 12 years old. My head feels okay. Each time with an extensive rehabilitation. Did you ever get down about it? Like I did, but at the same time, I just、uh, prayed a lot. When you were praying about it, were you praying this will be over? Were you praying I want to get my vision back? Or were you praying I'll let, stay alive? That I'll stay alive and that I'll get through it, and that's what happened. Finally, in 2017, a course of radiation eradicated the cancer, and Jacob got a clean scan. But his doctor said the radiation increased his lifetime risk of another brain tumor by up to 30 percent. Right now, the tumor that we originally targeted is gone. You know, so far so good. It doesn't sound like you've exhaled. I don't think you ever exhale. Because. Because there's always the what if, you know, when you get put into that situation that you never felt you ever should have been or expected. I don't think you're ever going to exhale and go. It's we're done. Whose idea was it to return to skiing? Well, my dad's. <laughs> Turn and go straight through it. So we came out here and we kind of just tried it out. Everywhere I went skiing for probably the first year or two was with either my dad or a coach. You've taught your kids to ski, but you've never taught a blind child to ski. No. So you did not know what you were doing. No. So tell me about those early days. Well, at first, everyone said get a rope and a sign, and he's going to be a blind skier, and you're going to guide him. Like I'm like, nope, that's not an option. We're not going to do it that way. Because why? Because I'm not going to let that define him. Father and son admit they're trying to carve their own path, sort of figuring it out as they go. Jacob says he's learned to listen for danger, other skiers, the churning of a lift, or icy conditions underfoot. Andy says he remembers many of the runs from when he could see. Can you feel your way down a run you didn't go on before you lost your vision? I mean, yeah, I can, and I've done it. <laughs> and how does it work out?、Uh, it's pretty scary, and、uh, sometimes takes me a little minute. That's got to be terrifying.、Uh, you get used to it. How many crashes were there in those early days? I don't even think I can count that high. When Jacob was ten, he shattered his femur in sixty places when he skied into a tree. Are you not nervous that there's going to be a catastrophic accident that he could die doing this? It's not the way I like vision life. I don't look for the reasons not to do things. I'm not going to put him in something that I'm not going through first. That the consequences of falling are not going to be life threatening. What are you fearful of? The only big fear I have is not succeeding. You're more afraid of not succeeding than you are of getting hurt. Yes. Why is that? Because I've already lost my vision, so a couple broken bones and a couple more mishaps, I guess, isn't a big deal to me at all. Clearly, he's fearless. As a parent, are you not fearful? 
He's not reckless. He knows his limitations. I think he has the ability to ski anything on the mountain, but he's not going to go try to do it by himself. Like he wants to be with somebody he wants to trust. He won't ski with people he doesn't trust. Nathan said Jacob is cautious about skiing and competing on low visibility days when he can see even less than usual. Still, he finds a way of keeping up with his siblings. They are an enviable pack on the mountain. Do you see him being like super plugged into everything else, right? To the sounds. He was saying he like hears the lift, the snow. Yeah. Like, what do you yeah. see? His hearing is very like he chooses what he wants to hear. So, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> there's times at home where he'll be like, you could say his name a thousand times, and he'll pretend like he didn't hear one word. But then skiing, it's like you could like flick, and he'll like just turn, you know. On competition day, Jacob suits up and sends it. Dad, drop in three, two, one. Finishing 19th out of 41 competitors. For Jacob, success isn't about the trophy. It's about freedom, showing others how to negotiate obstacles, even when you can't see them coming. Coming to the finish line. There you go. Honestly, no matter what gets thrown in front of you, what kind of comes out of nowhere and strikes you, takes you off guard a little bit, there is always a way to conquer it, to adapt, to make it happen, and then still do what you want to do. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. One downside of a career in journalism is how fast it can transform an eternal optimist into a chronic cynic. So much energy and airtime is expended reporting about criminals, charlatans, disasters, and idols with feet of clay that there's little room left for stories of inspiration. Finding and sharing stories, such as the three we reported tonight, is one rewarding aspect of working here at 60 Minutes. Stories of renewal, of hope, and of virtue are to be had among the many tales of crime, corruption, and global doom. Tales of inspiration are stories, too, and it doesn't hurt to report them. Not only can they inspire the viewer, but they also help keep the cynic and the reporter at bay. At least for a while. I'm John Wertheim. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? 
powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.